sometimes people tell me, hey, don't mess up today. I'll say, I'll do my best. They go, no, I know you do that. Just don't mess up today. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Alan. So Matthew chapter 6, we're going to uh, continue in our series. Um, we've been talking about money for a few weeks. And again, not the, not the aspect of you're in church, you need to give money. Um, you, you, you have to give, you have to do this with it. But we've been looking at what does the Bible say about our stuff? What does it say about our possessions? The Bible has over 2,000 verses that talk about what to do responsibly with the stuff God has stewarded, given us to be stewards of. So that's where we're going to continue to dive in today. And... Um, before we dive into our actual passage, there's a show I used to watch, and the show was, I mean, it could be a scary show, actually, when you think about it, but it was fascinating and scary and captivating, it did all these things, and it actually took the nation by storm when it came out. It was on A&E, and it was called, it aired for six years, it was called Hoarders. Anybody here watch Hoarders when that, like, when, when it came out? It was a fascinating show, like for, for all the wrong reasons, but you know, it became one of those like, have you seen like what's happening in some people's lives? And it, it, if you aren't familiar with it, it, it was a reality show, so it had some real life people and some of their real struggles, and some of them received treatment for some of their compulsive hoarding disorder, which prior to the show, I knew there were people that collected stuff, but I didn't know there actually was something called compulsive hoarding disorder. Um, is each hoarder received help for the treatment, the primary battle they had was parting with their belongings. And I remember the, the, some of the episodes, it was like, oh, this isn't so bad, but then some of the episodes, people literally climbing over garbage to get from room to room. And it was, it was crazy when, when they would talk how these people would break down talking about the psych psychological issue that they were dealing with. They literally could not get rid of stuff. And when people would try to help them say, hey, let's let this go, this literally is trash, and for us, we'd say, that is a used chip bag. You don't need it. For them, there were real reasons in their mind why they could not throw away this piece of garbage. And it was a fascinating show to, to see. Like I said, and, and sometimes it was just intriguing. Sometimes it was, it was disgusting in ways. But if you watched the show, often we'd find ourselves unable to change the channel. Like, you can't really understand what's going on, but you have to watch. It's kind of like watching curling in the Olympics, right? You don't get it, but you're captivated watching these people with these little brushes push that thing down the ice. You have to see what's going to happen next. Now, some of us would watch this show, we'd see a house, and we could easily say, how in the world can you get to that point? How can you get there? How can you let your life get to that point where you just, it looks like this. But for those of us who don't struggle with this disorder or, or have these, these internal or mental battles, we don't understand we can't understand because that's not something we have to deal with. Now, people that struggle with it don't understand how we or other people can just throw things away like that. So it's a battle where neither side understands the other, but it is a real thing that they go through. Overall, it was crazy to see some of the stuff that people would hoard. Now, this may be a, a radical behavior, right? We may not understand why people go through this, what could drive someone to get to that point, why could they hold on to so much stuff, but reality is, even if it's not stuff in your house like that, many of us can have a very big, real hoarding mentality when it comes to the stuff God has given us, specifically with our finances. We can have a hoarding mentality when it comes to our money. So the question is, if, how, how do we, what's the difference between hoarding money versus being responsible and saving money? 
There can be a big difference between the two, and Scripture talks about the two things. That's what we want to jump into today with our series. See, money talks, what we've been talking about. Money says some real things to us. Money talks. Money will say, hoard me. The world will say, hoard me. But if you look in Scripture, when money talks, what God says through money is God says, save me. God will say, save me. And there's a difference between the two. So let's, let's pray together, and we're going to dive into Matthew chapter 6. God, I thank you for today. God, I, I pray that as we, as we continue this talk on, on finances and stewardship, God, um, I pray that, that my, my, my opinions, our opinions, our thoughts are secondary to what your word says. God, I pray we really understand what you're trying to teach us, how, how you've given us incredible responsibility through our stuff to be lovers and stewards and servers of you. So I pray that that shines above everything and that through everything you've given us, we honor you and we ask this in your name. Everybody said, amen. amen. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, and two weeks ago when we started this series, we actually kicked off with this verse. We kicked off with this, and it says this, Matthew 6, 24, it says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. We talked all about that when we talked about, you know, just exactly that. What are we serving more? What is the biggest priority in our life? How we're managing our finances or how we're serving and loving God? What is number one? And if we're not careful, money easily can replace God in our hierarchy of importance. It can be the thing that keeps us up at night. It can be the thing that stresses us out when we have bills that are coming. Um, it is stuff that unexpected car issues, right? Money all of a sudden goes from, yeah, we're okay, to, oh, no, what are we going to do? Um, I remember growing up um, in my family, um, so I've shared before, I'm number seven of 15 kids, lots of kids. For a big chunk of my life growing up, we were on government assistance and welfare, and I remember walking in many times to my parents' bedrooms and seeing them, whether it was in tears or stressed over money. What, how are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to make sure that the, the rent was paid, that the electricity didn't get shut off? And I, I'm not kidding when I say growing up in my house was a genuine story of loaves and fishes many times. Food on the table, money in the account. When my parents said there's no way we could have been able, we should have been able to pay these bills or feed all 15 of us. I mean, can you imagine? For those of you who have like one or two teenagers in your house, imagine an army of teenagers in your house. It's a lot of food. It's a lot of food. But my family was always, my dad in particular said, we will always honor God with what we have. And my family was a testament to seeing God provide. He made sure that even in the midst of issues, God was number one. But money can so easily replace God if we're not careful because we need it, right? Money is so powerful in the world. So the most powerful people in the world have the most money. Money can end up buying power, can buy influence, can buy prominence, and ultimately take that place in number one. We need it, right? We, we need money. We need it to eat. We need it to live. We need it to have fun. I mean, we, we need money as something you need to survive. Even if you don't have a lot of it, it's a necessity, right? But what happens when that earthly thing overtakes the most important and spiritual element and it takes over that eternity perspective that we have? Simply put, it becomes our God. It becomes our idol and it replaces God I mean, our idol, anything that replaces God becomes our idol, however important it may be. But money always seems to be that one that overtakes in the first place. Now, I want to ask you a couple questions, and I want you to think about this. What statement freaks you out more? And, and be really, really honest. What statement freaks you out more? What if someone were to tell you there is no God? 
It's kind of a scary thing to think, right? You know, this is what we pour our life into. What if someone were to say there is no God? What if someone came up to you and said this? There is no money in your bank account. Yeah, I heard the chuckles, right? One would cause us probably, if you're honest, you know, what, what one freaks you out? One of us may cause us to go do some research, like, wait a second, I got to look into this claim you just made because I do not believe that. So one can cause a research response. One can cause a panic response. So what statement really freaks you out more? Be really honest. For, for many of us, question one would cause us to shift, right? We were like, all right, if someone said there is no God, I'm, I'm going to evaluate either, either I am 100% I am sure, yes, there is, and you're wrong. I'm, I'm going to go read. I'm going to spend some time with God. I'm going to pray. Like, God, why would someone say this? Reveal yourself. Let's, 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 let's build me up in this God. It can cause a good response in a research way, right? A, a, a personal devotions way. But for others, that second statement, if someone came to you and that was a true statement, hit the panic button. The staples, that was easy button, is now gone. Now it's the red panic button. Everything is a disaster because the bank account is empty. You start going into panic mode. How are we going to pay this? What's going to happen now? Do, are we going to lose our home? Do we have to move from our home? How are we going to get food? Just all the, the panic can start to set in, right? For some of us, maybe we've been there. We have had that moment where there is nothing in the bank account and you've been through that panic. So that statement right there, you can relate with right off the bat. Because reality hits. Running out of money, having a zero to your name in that area is a huge fear. It is a huge fear. And actually, two-thirds of Americans feel like when, we ret when they retire, they will run out of money during retirement. That's two-thirds of Americans. That's a good chunk of people saying at one point in their life, they know they will have Nothing. A real fear. So what do we do in response to that fear? We talked a little bit about it last week. In response to that question, sometimes we chase it, right? We say we're going to chase money. That's going to be our goal. We will chase the dollar to make sure that never happens. Or we cling to what we have. I want to talk about that this week. Sometimes if we're clinging too hard to it, we end up hoarding this instead of being stewards of it. <clears throat> so what we have here the Bible breaks down, uh, people have, in theology, have broken down two very different gospels that are on very extreme different ends. And you maybe have heard of one or maybe even both of these, but, and these are going to be very extremes. But I'm going to talk about one first. What we have is we have the prosperity versus the poverty gospel. Most of us have maybe even heard of the prosperity gospel. We've heard of maybe churches or pastors that we know. We have seen them preaching or teaching this. Maybe you haven't heard of the poverty gospel, but that's a very real one as well. And this is how they look. So on one very extreme side, there are some people who claim or, or believe through Scripture, they will say having money or saving money is not biblical. They will say saving money is not biblical. You should not save. Whatever you have, use it all. They'll say Jesus didn't save, so we shouldn't either. Jesus told the parable of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18. All three, or three of the Gospels have this story in which a wealthy young man comes to Jesus asking what he needed to do to earn eternal life. And it says this in Matthew 19, 21. Jesus talking to this rich young ruler. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Or this translation, you will have, well, you have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And so... People will often argue with this. They'll say, so what Jesus is saying there is you can have absolutely nothing to follow me. You must be broke, broke, broke. That is wrong, 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 right? That is an extreme interpretation of this. But people will often argue whether this was Jesus' response to just this individual or if this was his response to all people for all time, that you must have nothing, you must get rid of all of your money. 
And then, and then the example they'll use is they'll say, well, the disciples left their livelihoods, right? Jesus said, follow me, and they left everything behind to follow him. If we really believe in God, shouldn't we just trust him every day, like maybe like the Israelites did in the wilderness, and say, we're going to get rid of everything, every dollar, get rid of it all to follow him. This is called the poverty gospel. There are people that live like this. There are churches that teach this, and there are a large group of people believe that Jesus was very anti-money. That's one extreme side. The other extreme side, the one maybe we're more familiar with, the prosperity gospel. Right? And I saw a lot of people you know, raise their hands and nod when I said that, because we, we, we've heard of that one. I think that one is, is more commonly taught or known in the world, the, the prosperity gospel. And, and that is preached in some churches today. The prosperity gospel says that if you believe in God, and sometimes the extreme ones will say, if you believe in God and give to X, Y, and Z, whatever ministry this person is, is teaching out of, then you will become richer than you ever imagined. God wants you to have all the money. He wants you to have that Ferrari. He wants you to go on that tropical vacation, own the vacation house, have money pouring out of your ears. And that will happen if you give to X, Y, and Z. If you're faithful and give, you will, have, you will become filthy, rich, and happy. You can change your last name to Bezos. You are in, right? That's the prosperity gospel. Again, extremes. But I believe the reality of the gospel is different. I believe there, there's a middle ground that Jesus comes to us when he talks to us about our stewardship and our finances and what we're supposed to do with it. Scripture is filled with people on both ends of the spectrum. In Scripture, we, have, we see godly men and women who are poor. Whether through choice or circumstance, we see God using all of it. We have Ruth. She had next to nothing. For much of her life, next to nothing, honored God, and God used her. We see a widow who, when people were giving to the church, a rich man gave a lot of money. A widow, you know what she gave? Two coins. And Jesus said she gave more than anybody because she gave all that she had. God was speaking through this woman who didn't have anything. And then we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus that we actually talked about not that long ago in Luke 16. A rich man has everything. He ends up suffering dire consequences because he neglected who? The poor man on his porch. Walked by him, ignored him, and the poor man was the one that, was, that Jesus was working through, and the rich man, was, was, uh, he had all the consequences for ignoring the person in need. God worked through the poor man in this story. Perhaps the most famous story of someone choosing not to live a life, a lavish life, but accomplish something great, is the story of Jesus himself, right? God becoming man, coming on earth, living as one of us, and not raking in the big bucks, not raking in the big bucks. As a matter of fact, he did have money. We know this because Judas was the treasurer, and Scripture says Judas was actually helping himself to some of the money. So we know that Jesus worked through money, but we also know he wasn't rich, fame, and fortune. He wasn't showering money as he walked into towns performing miracles, right? We do know on the other end, though, Jesus shows us many examples of God-fearing men who had a lot of, you know what? They had a lot of money. They had a lot of stuff. They're individuals who are wealthy and prosperous. Abraham, maybe it wasn't cash and dollars, but his currency at the time, his possessions and his land was a lot. He was wealthy. We had Joseph. Joseph ended up being in charge of all of Egypt. You know what Joseph was in control of all of? All the money. He was in control of all of it. We had David, the king, control of all the money. King Solomon, he had it. We had Matthew, who was a tax collector. He was cheating people and making himself rich. God worked through these people. Some of them had some major career changes, some major life changes. But again, in Scripture, what I'm, the point I'm getting is we see poor people God doing incredible things through, and we see rich people God doing incredible things through. There are people like Job and the Apostle Paul. 
They experienced both ends of it. They had everything and then lost everything. And God worked through them as well. Incredible seasons of wealth, incredible seasons of extreme poverty and pain. Both sides at different points in their life. But what we see is in every one of these stories, whether there was someone that was poor, someone that was wealthy, when they decided to focus on God with whatever they had, God did incredible things through them. Absolutely incredible things. It wasn't so much about money they should or shouldn't have. It was about the posture of their hearts with what they did have. And God worked through that in incredible ways. So it's not what do you have, what should you have. It's how much money, or, uh, how much money you should strive to hold on to and hoard forever, but how to honor God. Whatever God has given you, the question then is, what are you doing to honor him with it? Are you hoarding it for yourself? Are you saving it for good things? Are you using it to serve it? What is God telling you to do with your stuff, and are you honoring him? That's the real question behind, not how much or little you have. It's what are you doing with God has given you to steward? Now, I'll be totally honest with you. I have a savings account. I save. I am the saver. Not everyone in my family likes to save. I'm a saver. Um, I put away money for retirement. I put away money for kids' college. I put away money for weddings. I got two girls. I know I'm going to have to hit that bill one day. I have an emergency fund. If, if, something, if something bad were to happen at home, I have money I can tap into to make sure that we can pay for it. Now, it's not a lavish, oh, I can just write a check and do whatever I want, but I'm, I'm doing my best to prepare for the needs that I may have in the future. I think it's wise to set aside money. It is wise to be prepared. It is wise to be prepared. But all of those things come after we honor God with our money. All of those things, I, I always make sure I say, God, this is what we're doing with you first. All of my stuff comes after. And that's something that my parents really, really embedded into my heart when I was, in my life when I was a kid. And I remember even earning um, allowance at times. They would ask, say, hey, so what are you going to do with that? Are you going to honor God with some of it and then do other things? And so it was something they always put into our lives. And it's translated into my adult life now. Having savings is not a bad thing, but that brings tension when it comes to, the, to our finances now and, and how we're trying to interpret what scripture says about it, right? So the question is then, are we saving or are we hoarding? Are we saving or are we hoarding? So that's what we're going to dive into here. In the key area, I believe, in every, every financial choice we make, every single one is honoring God first. I think that's a question we should all ask ourselves before we make any major financial decision. If, if you're talking about going to buy a candy bar, you don't have to say, is this a God-honoring candy bar? I understand you just want a piece of chocolate. It's okay. But when we talk about big financial decisions, the direction we're going to really take our families, I think we all have to start with that question. How are we going to honor God with this decision? How is this going to honor God first? And when we do that, it's amazing to see how God answers. It's amazing to see how God provides. It's amazing even at times to see how God convicts. I know there's been things I wanted to do, and I've prayed about it, and it's like, I really, really think this is a good thing. I want to go for it. And then God says, no, you don't. And I'm like, but God, I do. But <laughs> I really do. But then he says no, and his way is always better. His way always works out for the best. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness totally dependent on God. 100% dependent on what he was doing. Now, one of the ways that he provided for them is he provided manna every morning. Every morning they'd wake up, and manna in the Bible is a white, flaky, bread-like substance. And manna literally means, translated from Hebrew, what is it? So they went out and this, what is it? Manna. It was bread on the ground that God provided every single day for them. Now, in Exodus 16, it says that every morning they were instructed, go out, gather what you need for that day. And gather everything you need for that day. And if they gathered more than what was needed, you know what would happen the next day? 
It was rotten. It was full of maggots. It was bad. It would not go to the next day. Now, there was one exception to this rule, only one. The day before the Sabbath, they were instructed, take everything you need to get through the Sabbath as well. There's not going to be manna for you to gather that day, so take what you need for those two days so you don't have to worry about it on the Sabbath, and you can rest on the Sabbath. For that one extra day, the manna would not rot. It would be totally fine. This kind of causes a question, right? Why would God do this? Why, why, Why would God say, here's the food. I will do this for you every day, but on the next day it's going to spoil, except for this day. Why would God not just say, take what you need and enjoy the leftovers? Right? I mean, our leftovers are key in our house. We wake a meal, the kids will say, what's for, what's for lunch? What's for dinner? Leftovers. There's the fridge. Why, why was this not the case back then? Why was God saying only take for this day except on this day? And I think God was teaching them an incredible principle. God was teaching them, one, that he was going to provide. That he was going to be the source of everything they needed. And I also think he was giving them a great principle about hoarding versus saving. He was there to help them rely on his ability to care for them, his ability to provide for them. He was teaching them to trust, ultimately to trust him with everything. Don't hoard, but on the day before the Sabbath, be prepared. Being prepared is not hoarding. Being prepared is being wise. So God was teaching on this principle. I think he was going against the poverty and the prosperity gospel in one fell swoop. It was 40 years of that fell swoop, but still, you know what I mean? It was was that, that lesson he was teaching them over this time. Ultimate trust in him and his provision. Also, be prepared for the days where you, ha- where you know something's going to change. And I think the question we then ask ourselves with this principle is, where in our life is God teaching us to trust him? And that answer is going to be different for a lot of people, but I know for a lot of us, a big starting point here is when it comes to our finances. Where in our own life is God teaching us to trust him? This isn't a poverty gospel question. It's not a prosperity gospel question. I think instead this is is all about saving, being responsible, and trusting God and having a heart that's right before him, knowing that he is the one that is going to care for us, that he is the one that is going to provide for us, and that he will honor us the more that we honor him. A heart that trusts God enough to say, I'm not going to hoard the money. I'm not going to hoard the things. I'm not going to make this all about me because, God, I trust you more than I trust myself. You alone, God, are my portion. And that's not to say, again, that we shouldn't save. Don't, don't hear me, and if you look at your savings account, go, I've got a good amount of savings. Pastor has told me to give it all away. I'm not saying that. As a matter of fact, if you're being responsible and honoring God in your finances, having a good savings account is nice. It's very, very nice. This isn't to say you're not to save. Through Joseph, we learned an incredible principle on saving, Right? If you know the story of Joseph, God instructed the Egyptians to save during seven years of plenty because you know what was coming? Seven years of nothing. Seven years of famine that was going to go throughout all the land. And so God trusted Joseph. God said, Joseph, I want you to save for seven years. So for those seven years of famine, everything will be okay. And through that, families were restored. Israel was saved. It's an incredible story, all because someone trusted God to save. Not to hoard, but to, be, but to be a good steward, to save and help people. That's in Genesis 41 through 47. Joseph trusted God enough to save when God said save. Seven years is a long time to save something. But can you imagine if Joseph wouldn't have saved for those seven years? 
Seven years of famine comes, and then nobody has anything. In our lives, we can hit that same principle. If we're, if we're not saving through the good years, what happens when we have some of the bad years? I remember talking to one of my friends who was a, a real estate agent, and um, for me, I was like, man, that's, for, for me, that, that kind of builds anxiety, not knowing what your next check's going to be, not knowing when it's going to come, not knowing if you're going to sell anything this next month. And he told me an incredible principle when I was talking with him. He actually used this story. He said, I actually get my saving principle from Joseph. I don't know if I'm going to go through a famine year, if the economy is going to crash or recession hits. So I have to make sure that even though if I sell more than I've ever sold in my life, I am prepared for those months or even a year where we hardly sell anything. We just have to be, we have to save, we have to be ready. And he actually got through the recession really, really well because right before that was a good boom and he was able to save. God spoke through his life anymore. He honored God with his money and what God trusted him with, he was okay to lead his family. Now, the difference between Joseph and the Israelites trying to hoard manna and Joseph saving for, for the future was the posture of their hearts. There were Israelites that didn't listen to God right away. The, they, they, they took all the food. They're like, oh, I don't know. I mean, tomorrow if someone beats us out of our tent, they may take all the manna, right? I got to make sure I have enough. There was always enough, but if they took too much and hoarded, it would go rotten and bad. Joseph didn't take too much. He took what was needed to prepare for the future. When God said save, Joseph, Joseph saved. When God told the Israelites, do not hoard, they had to trust and only gather what they needed for that day and on the Sabbath for the day ahead. The point is this. If you let God guide you, if you let God lead you in your finances, you know what he'll do? He'll guide you. He'll lead you. He'll do it, and he's not going to do it to harm you. He is trustworthy. He is the most trustworthy. I've heard so many pastors say this. God is a good businessman. He's the best one. He's not going to make a deal that messes you up. He's going to make one that works for your benefit. You may not see it right away, but that's what he does. He works for you. I think one of the most true lines of scripture that sometimes we, we don't give enough credit to is that line, God is for you. God is for you. He may not want money pouring out your ears like some people may think, but he's for you and he wants your heart. God will guide you if you let him. And that applies as much to money as it does to every other area in our life. Let God guide more than our money. Let God guide you. Let God guide the direction you go, the, the conversations you have, the way you lead your family, the way you support your family, the way you, the way you raise your kids, the way you go out in the community and serve, the way you hang out with your friends. Let God guide you in those things and watch how he leads you in those things. Let him be your provider. And if you need a reminder, every form of American currency has the same phrase on it. We all know the phrase, right? And God we trust is on there. Now, whether you think that's just a government thing or whatever you think of that, when you see that line, believe in that line. When you have that dollar, trust God with that dollar. What's he going to do with it? There's a, it's a visible reminder of the provision on the very wealth of your bank account and your wallet. As the Israelites prepared to enter the promised land, Moses reminded them of how God provided them for, with the manna in the wilderness. He said, remember, God provided for us now. He's going to provide for us there. This is what he did. But Moses cautioned them in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says this, God gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. I love that. I love that, that Moses is reminding the Israelites, he says, hey, even if you have to use your hands to do it, who gave you those hands to do it? 
Even if you have to work hard, who gave you the ability to work hard? Who made the dirt you're going to plant in? Who created this tree that you're going to nurture, right? God is working through all these things. Never forget that he is the one that is doing all of this work and giving you the ability to produce through it. Even if you didn't inherit a dime from your family and you worked hard to build up all the wealth yourself, God is the one who gave you the strength to do it, the wisdom to do it, the drive to do it. He is behind what we do. Whether it's a lot or whether it's a little, God is in charge of it. And he, God, Moses is telling the, the Israelites here, remember, always give thanks to God for whatever it is. If it's the little you have, thanks be to God for that little. If it's the abundance you have, Thank God for that abundance. Always have that heart posture because that's more than anything, God, God doesn't want your money as much as he wants your heart. That's first and foremost. He wants your heart so badly. And through that comes so much obedience and following what he wants us to do with our stuff. Remember to give thanks to God for all of our earthly possessions because here's the thing when it comes to earthly possessions, we can all know this truth. Heaven, not earth, is our home. Heaven, not earth, is our home. This is, this is where we are now, right? But earth, earth, this is a temporary place. Money is a temporary thing. Our stuff is a temporary thing. So if, if heaven is our home, if earth is not our home, then how much is enough? Well, it depends on who you listen to, right? Money will say this. The world will say this. There is never enough. There is never enough. You need me to be happy. You need me to sleep easy. And some of us may say, oh, there's a little bit of truth in that, right? I mean... I know the opposite's true. On, on days where I feel like I don't have any money, it's, those are some restless nights. When, when, you got that, when you get that bill and you don't know how to get a, you're going to pay it, it could be a very restless night. I shared a number of weeks ago how um, my wife and I went through a season where we had multiple surgeries in one year and we got this bill from Kaiser and it was thousands of dollars and we had no idea how we we're going to pay it. I lost sleep those nights. When, when the, the bill collectors from Kaiser were calling and saying, you need to make this payment, and I, I didn't know what to do, it was restless nights. When God provided, I had a restless night for a different reason. It was more of the, God, I can't believe you just did this for me. And it was a good restless night because I got to worship and pray. And then, and then when I slept, it was a peaceful sleep. Philippians talks about a peace that surpasses all understanding, and man, God showed that in my life. And it was incredible. Money says there's never enough. God, on the other hand, says this. He says, come to me, all who are weary, and you will find rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. It's Matthew 11, 28-30. Philippians 4, 11-13 says, trust me to provide. I am, the source of I am your source of joy and contentment. Like Paul, we, we've got to learn to be content in both seasons of plenty and seasons of want. Paul experienced it all. He had the highest of highs. He was rolling in money and living good. Then he was dependent on people donating to him. And all seasons, he learned to be content with whatever God had given him. He found a great formula in just trusting God. And ultimately, your money does not go with you into eternity. It doesn't follow you. We've talked about that before. The, the, the U-Haul truck doesn't follow the hearse to the cemetery. Told the story of the woman writing the check to her husband and putting it in the grave, right? The money doesn't go with you. It does not follow you into eternity. Eventually, it goes to someone or someone that comes after you. And at that point, guess who has control of it? Not you is the only definite answer, right? It's not you. You are no longer in control of that stuff. Even while we're alive, though, money can be here one day and gone the next. 
In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was, was uh, he warns against trying to store up all the riches here on earth because he knows, he was telling everyone, this is not a permanent place. He says this in Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Very few earthly possessions are really long-lasting. None of them are eternal. Not a single one. It's not how much money we have. It's what we're doing with what God has trusted us with that counts. So why save? Why not just give it all? Why save? James 5, 1 through 3 says this. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, the moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now what James is saying, he's not saying saving is bad, but he's saying that the heart behind the just me, 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 I want it all for me mentality, that's what he's warning people against. He's saying everything eventually will come down and get destroyed. If you do it for yourselves, it simply will not last. Saving has to be done with, with a purpose in mind, a, a goal set. What am I putting this away for? God, how are you going to use this? What are you instructing me to do in my life moving forward? What purpose is in mind? Avoiding unnecessary expenses that are, that are wasteful. In other words, purchasing something that, that you don't need to and it's just crazy to flaunt everything that you have. James is warning against this heart, saying don't just do this and neglect the important things. It all comes down to living a life that shows the two most important things that Jesus told people when they asked him. What's the most important thing? He gave two. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. Those are the most important rules. And if we treat our finances with those rules in mind, imagine what God can do. Imagine what God can do for his kingdom, for his people, for his world. But we've got to love him and love his people. In saving and planning for the future, though, we can maybe feel like we're, we're holding this tension. Like, well, am I saving or am I hoarding? If we like, I mean, we, we like stuff. I like stuff. I, I like money. I like having money. But, but in the midst of knowing these things, also knowing that, that heaven, not earth, is our home, we don't know the number of our days. Only God knows the number of our days, right? God knows what's in store. And even our best laid out plans, the, the most planning we can do can come to ruin. You guys ever made plans and seen those in just a matter of a day fall apart for whatever reason? Same thing can happen with our finances. We can make plans and things can fall apart. But one thing is certain, that Jesus is in charge. He is still Lord. And when we're trusting him, even if our plans fall apart, his never do. His never, ever fall apart. And when we accept him as Lord, we say, God, I, I want you to be in charge of my heart. I want you to be in charge of my stuff. Everything changes because our mind changes and our, the posture of our heart changes and how we use our stuff changes. Everything shifts in the most incredible way. God's perfect love casts out the fear of failure, the fear of disappointment, the fear of falling apart. That's 1 John 4, 18. God's peace surpasses all understanding will ride in your, in your heart. That's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. God will keep the, perfin, the person in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on him because they trust in God. That's Isaiah 26.3. All throughout scripture, it talks about how we don't need to worry about the earthly stuff when we're trusting God about the eternal stuff. He takes care of it. So where's our hope? Where's our peace? Where is ultimately our trust? 
If we're really going to believe, let's put it on currency. It doesn't say in this dollar I trust. It says in God. In God I trust. And through that, we can find freedom. Freedom comes from surrendering all that we are, all that we have, all that we do to him. Everything, not, not keeping it for yourself, but giving it all to him. And surrender is the, most single, is the single most powerful tool you can have when it comes to financial freedom and financial obedience to God. A financial advisor may promise you financial freedom and, and allow them to invest your money. And there are some great financial advisors out there. I know I met with one when it came to retirement, and I have different investments that I do to make sure that I'm going to be okay when I retire. But that's secondary to what God is doing in my life and telling me how he directs what I do with my stuff. But even the savviest investor, you know what they can't do? The most well-known investor cannot guarantee you financial freedom. There's always a risk, right? They can't guarantee a peace of mind with your stuff. Only one person can do that. Only one person can guarantee peace that surpasses all understanding, and that's God. He's the only one that can do it. Save money. Be wise. Don't be a hoarder and watch it spoil. Be wise with it. Invest in the things God has put on your heart to invest in. Love him the way, the way you, with this all-encompassing love, the way he loves us. Say, God, all I have, all, I, all you've given me is yours. What do we get to do with it? And watch how he works in it. And it's incredible. Everything shifts when we understand this mentality. If you look at all your stuff, you look at your money, you look at your bank account, if you have this mentality, it's not mine in the first place, everything changes. If you look at it and you say, this is all God's, he's trusting me to use it, everything shifts on how we do it, how we save, how we spend, how we serve. And ultimately, it's a posture of our hearts. Would you I'd like to invite the worship team up today as we get ready to come to a close? Know that, that ultimately saving and surrendering everything that you have to God, this is a powerful act of trust. This is ultimately trust in the name of obedience with him. And obedience, I feel like, is the, the kind of the currency of faith, right? How do people know you have faith? You have action in it. You're acting it out. You're walking it out. Faith in action. It's following in loving trust, knowing, God, I may not fully understand this. I may not know 100% what's going on, but I'm going to trust you because you are the one that is trustworthy above all else. Whatever God is calling you to do with your finances, I invite you, listen to him. Listen to him. Trust him. Trust what he's saying. Don't, don't trust the world with your money. Trust God with it. He is the trustworthy one. Would you all stand with me? What would it look like if you surrendered everything to him? Your home, your vehicles, your bank account. You said, God, it's yours. What do you want me to do? God's faithful. God's true. As you step out in faith, watch him step out in faith. So many times in scripture we see it where God says, I'm going to trust you with a little bit and see what you do. And then someone does it. And you know what God does? Then he gives them and trusts them with more. He says, I'm going to trust you with more. The more we trust God, the more he trusts us. And this is not a prosperity thing. This is an obedience thing. God wants the best for you. I know that when we give him our best, he's ready to say, here's what I've got for you. Let's go. Let's trust God with all we have and know that we can save. Let's not hoard what he's given us. Let's serve, let's save, let's use what he's given us for his kingdom, amen? I want you guys to do this with me real quick, and I hope you don't get weirded out by this. I seldom do things like this, but I'd like you just to, to put your hands out today and just as a, as a posture of if you're willing to do this, just say, just, just say this in your heart as I say it. Just, God, 
I surrender everything to you. God, I, I surrender my, my, my house, my stuff, my wallet, my bank account. God, I give it to you. And God, as I, as I release this to you, I want you to put more of you in my hands, more of you in my heart, more of you in my life, so then when I put my hands out, I can give more of you out to people. So God, we give you all we are. God, I, I, I love that you are so good and you are so generous and your grace and your, your gifts and your love overflows, God. I pray that in our lives we trust it all to you and we see your mercies and your goodness flow out through our lives. Whether that's through service or finances or whatever it is you've given each of us to serve with, God, I pray that we trust you with it. God, we don't hoard these things for ourselves, but we use them for you. So God, we thank you, we love you, and we trust you, and we believe in you. And everybody said, amen. amen.